night Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win goals But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back That's the, uh, that's, that's, that's a song is what that is Uh, hi! This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We're doing another Tarantino rewatch series entry today. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Mike, we're talking about The Bride and Bill. One of my favorite Tarantino movies. Yeah. If not my favorite. I, I don't know where this is going to land at the end of this rewatch, but uh, you got an audience question for yes, us. Yes, that's a good place to start. and Nice lead in by you. So we were asked by Ollie at Out of Our Element, uh, which is at Ollie, O-L-L-I-E, at, uh, I'm sorry, O-L-L-I-E-O-O-O-E is his at. That's a lot of O's. But he asked us, which of Tarantino's films would you each rank as your favorite? And do you think this is likely to change over the course of your rewatch series? What I thought was a really fascinating question. And not something we had touched on yet. Uh, I thought we could lead off the show with that today. But for you, you say this is likely what you remember as your favorite? This is a perfect question. Because going into this rewatch, I would have said Inglorious Bastards 100 times out of 100. Mm -hmm. Because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. But after watching this... I loved every minute of it, and I think this is a masterpiece, and I love genre cinema, so I'm all about it, and I I might change my answer. So you're leaning more Kill Bill now. To, yeah, to what he's saying, at the end of this rewatch, Kill Bill might be my number one. It's funny, we're kind of seeing things the same way. I I would think my... I haven't seen The Hateful Eight, and I hadn't seen Jackie Brown, so those are my two two holes in Tarantino filmography. I think going in, I was thinking it'd be Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. but... I was really enamored with this movie, and I know I'm going to love Inglorious Bastards again. I know I was very, very high on that. So I, I and Pulp Fiction, quite frankly, we talked about why some of his early films lose points, and why some of his films overall True. lose points, and that definitely did. Not as much with this one, though. No, too. It's a lot happening. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. So I, I would think right now I'll probably still say Pulp Fiction. But I reserve the right to change it when Inglorious Bastards comes around and we see what we do with that because I was very on that. And maybe I'm huge on the Hateful Eight too. I just don't have any exposure to it yet. I haven't seen it yet. So uh, it is an interesting question to see how our tastes change because mm-hmm. it's already happened. I mean, with Pulp Fiction, it's already, like we said, it's gone down a little bit. With with the first movie, Reservoir Dogs, it's gone down a little bit because of certain things. I'm sure with Django, we're going to have a problem with it with some of the things in there. So uh, that's a really fascinating question. We thank you, Ollie, for asking. Ollie, that. We, hope, we hope that actually brings something that we. We can concentrate on going forward and and concentrate on how our tastes are changing and how we're doing uh with these movies now versus how we first enjoyed them and if they're they've changed at all in our rankings but for those of you that haven't been listening to this series yet as part of this tarantino rewatch series what these episodes are are basically two reviews for the price of one overall we have a non-spoiler section a spoiler warning and then a spoiler section for every tarantino episode now what that means is in the non-spoiler section if you've not seen these movies yet that's okay we just have a certain specs production values go over the performances etc we have an entry from mmo theater (laughs) 
-hmm. Mike, Mike, and Oscar Theater. That's going to act as your spoiler warning. And then we have the spoiler section where we go in and out and we talk about all the ups and downs of the plot, things we like and didn't like. We also have differentiate these Tarantino episodes by eight different sections in each one of these episodes versus any of our Oscar Sprint profiles or anything. Yeah, we got a year in review, watch stories where we first took in the movie, what makes Quentin dance. We talk about all the homages, which is something that we do throughout the episode, all the little details, the Easter eggs, etc. Uh, we get into all that. This is a deep dive if there ever was mm -hmm. one, all four of them so far, and this will be no exception. Uh, MMO Theater. Trademark Tarantino is kind of where we discuss all the bests. Classic Tarantino, the sneaky classic scenes that uh, we love upon rewatch, and of course, Un-Tarantino, which we're going to have a lot to say in this one. We mention Quentin's screenwriting advice, and I listened to a couple interviews where he talked a lot about how he uh, allows these narratives to go off the rails during his writing process, so that was fun. Yeah. And then you have the connections to the Tarantino-verse plus the Easter eggs in our final segment. Yeah, so that's kind of what we're dealing with in every Tarantino episode. The way we start these episodes is Mike is going to run down the cast and crew, so here we go. Kill Bill, just volume one for this episode. Volume two will be coming to you next week, but let's get to it, Mike. So between the productions of Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume 1, Quentin did a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. uh, he was producer for From Dust Till Dawn in 96, and his producing career kicks up just a little bit because he's the producer on the two, I think, direct-to-video sequels. So that ah. is, a, is a you know portion of his life. I don't think I ever saw those, to be honest, the sequels. No. I saw the first one. The first one was fun. <laughs> yeah effed up but yeah, uh, yes <laughs> he's also somehow the executive producer for julia sweeney's comedy special god said ha she was the attendant at the dump where the wolf yeah. got the car in pulp fiction so yeah. they're friends as an actor tarantino played the deacon in adam sandler's <laughs> little nicky yes he also started the first of his four appearances on the show alias as mckinnis cole did you watch alias back in the no movie? i never mm -hmm. was a must have been a big character if he had four appearances. Yeah. Otherwise, he's hard at work on Kill Bill. He tried to write Inglorious Bastards before he got into this. That was his quote-unquote Mount Everest that he was trying to climb before this movie really kicked up. But the reason why Kill Bill became a thing, because that Fox Force 5 idea yeah. for the backstory of Uma Thurman's character in Pulp Fiction became something that they kept talking about on set during the production of Pulp and all their downtime, and there's a lot of downtime on, on a film set, they're talking about Kill Bill. And they basically kind of worked the basis for the story up together. And that's why at the beginning of the movie, it's a Q&U, characters by yep. Q&U credit, which is kind of fun. In terms of Uma Thurman, she was in The Truth About Cats and Dogs, Batman and Robin, in between the break between Pulp Fiction and this. She also kind of did Gattaca, the Liam Neeson, Les Miserables, The Avengers. No, not that not one. Not those. Uh, Boy, was I mistaken when I watched low. that the first time as an adolescent. She did a lot of movies with some highly touted filmmakers, Sweet and Lowdown, Vitell, Tape, Richard Linklater, The Golden Bowl, which was a James Ivory movie. So those are notable directors where she's really getting her reps, but her blockbusters were kind of flops in many ways. So Quentin passed. Who can play that game in the video store, Mike? 
and decided he wanted to cast Vivica A. Fox as Vernita Green. Where this guy gets inspiration is stunning. The video store, pretty yeah. much, because he watches Shanghai Noon after getting the recommendation from his friends, and then he wants Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii. Yeah. Uh, originally, the character of Oren was just Japanese, but by hiring Liu, Quentin decided to make the character part Chinese and Japanese and of American descent and worked it into her character. That's very thoughtful of him to actually mimic that character's backstory to Lucy Liu's actual backstory. He said he wanted her to become the head of the Yakuza, yeah. no, ma- no matter her ancestry. Her origin, and there's yeah. a big scene about that. Sonny Chiba was one of Tarantino's favorite action stars growing up, and Chiba plays Hattori Hanzo, I think for the f- fifth time in his career, because he had a TV series back when, that Tarantino watched on the Japanese channel in his apartment or his house when he was a kid, and they would bring it back every other year, and it was a new Hattori Hanzo. It was like another generation. They would flash forward 30 years. So Tarantino says this is supposed to be the 100th Hattori Hanzo, like the descendants. So Doctor Who is a plagiarized. <laughs> I guess <laughs> from, from, the, uh, from the old Japanese yeah. station in, uh, in L.A. Then. Uh, the mermaid from Splash herself. Daryl Hannah plays Ellie Driver with the eye patch mm-hmm. in the hell of the walk and the whistle. Michael Madsen is given a quick few scenes in this movie. He'll be a big part of the next one. He, of course, is Bud. Great hair. Bill is voiced by David Carradine from Kung Fu and Death Race, and we'll have the backstory on his casting in the next episode of this series. Kill Bill Volume 1 also stars Julie Dreyfus as Sophie, Chiaki Kuriyama as Gogo, Gordon Liu as Johnny Moe, Michael Parks, who's awesome in this and the next movie, Michael Bowen, June Kunimara, Jonathan Lochran, and Christopher Allen Nelson. Hell of a job by this entire ensemble. Yeah, Chiaki Kuriyama kept me up at night the first time I saw these movies. Scary, we'll talk right? about that. Jesus. Absolutely terrifying. Some backstory, some specs, however you want to talk about them in the year in review as well. Kill Bill Volume 1. Alright, so I need to get this out of the way at the top here. I know there's some people out there who hear the names Quentin Tarantino, Uma Thurman, and Miramax and immediately think to themselves, wasn't there some mess going on with this movie that was relitigated in public during the Me Too movement? Right. So the answer is yes. We promised during episode one of this rewatch series that both we, Mikes, were fans of Tarantino's filmmaking, but were not blind to the controversies and notorious incidents that Tarantino has been associated with and would comment on both as they came along. However, though this film was shot as one piece and split up afterwards... A lot of the story that this is that I'm talking about and referring to now is as a result of what came in volume two of this franchise. So in the interest of continuity, we'll be rehashing all that during this segment in our next episode and not during this one. So if that's what you see comments on, all I can say is right. stay tuned. There's an anecdote from Kill Bill Volume One, the chain by Gogo mm-hmm. at the end of that fight. Right. And, uh, again, we're going to weigh in on it. As far as specs for Volume 1, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and his work, like Mike told you, just to give you a little more background into it, derived from conversations in a story that Uma and Quentin had created together while on the set of Pulp Fiction. And as they discussed in a 2004 interview with IGN, was a story crafted in 2000 and 2001 when Tarantino was living in New York and Uma was a new first-time mother. Now, like Mike just told you, if you saw the title card in this movie based on the characters of The Bride created 
created by Q and U, you can figure out who those initials belong to here. The film debuted October 10th in 2003, making it the first Tarantino feature to not open at a film festival or earlier than its national release date. I'm upset by that. They, they should have just done it. Put it on Sundance or something? Yeah, he should have just done it, damn it. <laughs> uh, film carried a $30 million production budget, which is more than double Tarantino's previous highest to date. You have to think that at least some of that budget was due to the massive amounts of fake blood used in this movie, as Tarantino, and channeling some of his kung fu inspirations we'll talk about soon, apparently went through as much as 400 to 450 gallons of the fake red stuff, according to effects artist Christopher A. Nelson's interview with Ain't It Cool News from back in 2014. Who plays the bride's husband. Yeah. Go figure. Nice to get a little shout-out. The casting of this... Tarantino casting sometimes is just like... It feels like I it want comes him. on a win. Yeah. It's like, oh, you'd be good in this. Guy. I want you. Go play this role now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that's for sure, though, was Thurman's involvement in the script every step of the way. In that previously mentioned interview with IGN Magazine promoting the sequel, Kill Bill Volume 2, in April of 2004, Tarantino and Thurman relived their process of writing the script and going every step of the way through it together. The year-and-a-half-long process would apparently involve Quinton's writing some pages, Uma reading them as they came, and then the two of them having conversations about what was happening, what the characters would be feeling and doing next along the way. That's awesome. A collaborative effort if ever there were one and probably unsurprisingly considering just how involved a woman's personal experience was in the writing process, the most feministic celebrated of all of Tarantino's scripts. Hmm. So Tarantino considered this movie Uma's as much as it was his own, so much so that when discussing having to delay production due to Thurman's pregnancy during a 2003 BBC interview, Tarantino dropped this quote, quote, If Joseph von Sternberg is getting ready to make Morocco and Marlene Dietrich gets pregnant, he waits for Dietrich. I love that so much. I love Joseph von Sternberg. What a nerd. I love Dietrich. And it, he, yeah, he mentioned that in every single yeah. interview, and he's damn right. Of course you do. So as a means of year in review and tying this all together, what's most curious to me, and this is where you can come in here, dear listener, is that by Tarantino's own account, writing the script was basically his entire life over the years of 2000 and 2001, and did so while living in New York City. So when you mention New York City and 2001, obviously, 9-11 springs to mind, as it should. It was an event that changed our entire way of life and has personally impacted every single person in some way or another. Yet for the life of me, I could find no evidence that Tarantino in any way used that event for this script. I don't mean necessarily as an homage, but you would think that just for such a prestigious director to be doing this work that close to ground zero, there would be some anecdote to be found where maybe he had a small script change or a random line of dialogue adjusted or just, I don't know, anything having to do with 9-11. Yet again, I couldn't find any. Maybe this movie hit at the right time, and it hit him at the right time because it's so much of a fantasy, right? The hyper-real elements of it all. It was a way to get away from the you know, the horrors of what Real was life. really going on. And we, we've shown, he's proven that if it, if it this didn't have any impact, 9-11 didn't impact the script at all. He's proven to be not really, I don't know, cognizant of the real world around him. It doesn't really come into play when he's crafted his stories. He runs away to Amsterdam and he doesn't really worry about real life. He kind of hunkers down in a New York City apartment and doesn't really worry about real life. It's just pot calling the kettle, you know, right now because <laughs> we do the same well, I'm not, thing. I'm not saying, I'm not making negative connotation. I just say maybe he's immune to current day societies and he wants to tell his story for his story's sake. Our democracy is crashing. <laughs> 
in a spectacular fashion, and we're reviewing movies every day, and very happy to do so with yeah. a tagline. No judgments from us. A tagline that fits that exact <laughs> maxim. But if you do know of something, I just couldn't find it, so if you listeners out there know of some kind of tie-in between 9-11 and this script, sure. uh, we'd love to hear it, so be sure to reach out to us and let I us know. I didn't even see it in any of the Easter egg No, me either. Online. Couldn't find anything. Nowhere. Just some quick stats on both the box office and critical reception for Volume 1 here. As the $30 million budget was good enough for the film to reel in $181 million worldwide. That's making money. $70 million of that came domestically. It received an 8.1 IMDb score as well as an 84-81 Rotten Tomato score split between Solid. critics and audience scores. Very high. And 32 million people weighed in on that audience score. Nice. Good God. I love that number the most. Again, though, this movie was shut out of Academy nominations as its lone major award nom was Uma Thurman's lead actress in a drama nomination at the 2004 Golden Globes. We'll talk about the Oscars lens in a minute. Plot premise reads, after awakening from a four-year coma, a former assassin wreaks vengeance on the team of assassins who betrayed her. That's Short, sweet, enough, and to right? the point, and also the pretty much... Well, not exactly. I, I thought they would be, uh, allude more to Fox Force 5 in that, and they really don't. I, I think I thought they kind of tiptoed around it. That's the genesis, I guess, for right. the, the, the idea that sparked the idea. Right. Uh, but I, I, I'm with you. I think Fox Force 5 exists as a pilot, <laughs> that never made it and this is the real thing this is the real shebang yeah mike our first watch stories slash expectations here for this rewatch so this is where i started going to the movies to see tarantino films i'm a freshman in college i'm seeing this movie out in new york city with new friends life is good i missed the boat on the first three movies so this this one really blew me away in theaters I remember being shocked at what I was watching because it wasn't what I figured because I watched the first three movies. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of un-Tarantino stuff here. Yes, yes. Uh, but I, I loved it. And for the next four years, my buddies and I, we watched this in the dorm room. Is it just an American male rite of passage that, like, freshman year of college, you have to get exposure to Tarantino? I think Because that's, that's when I did it, too. I mean, full Fiction, I watched on my laptop through very legal means. Uh, <laughs> but that was when I first had my exposure. I know tons of people, they get used to it in college. I mean, good God, can you walk into a dorm room without seeing the giant Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs posters everywhere? Yeah, the yellow didn't really go with the rest of the room, <laughs> but who cares? Really tied the room together, did it not? <laughs> so how about you? Do you remember anything from that first one? You know what's funny? I remember vividly where I was, volume two. Mm -hmm. I remember, it's kind of a funny story, I'll have to save it, but... Volume 1, I know I saw it. I know I saw it in the theater. I'm almost positive it was in the Podunk Theater down the hill here. Mm -hmm. I know I was in high school. Right. I don't remember the experience of actually seeing this for the first time. My more vivid memories are owning the DVD and watching it like in my home. True. And, and, and watching it over and over again because I was enamored with it. But I don't remember my first exposure to it. Isn't that funny? I remember the night of Kill Bill 2, that yeah. premiere. I was watching Kill Bill 1. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Leading into it. <laughs> and I was so hyped. I remember that as well. All right, so let's get into some production value, sight to sound. There's a lot here, a lot for later. Cinematography just makes me so happy when it's done right. And this camera jumps above the rafters at the restaurant, following the bride to the bathroom where she's going to ambush another it's character. Crazy. I nearly teared up. It was so brilliant. Yeah. I was that happy with it. I, I know you're going to get mad at me for this, but Mike, throughout this movie, I am moaning with pleasure watching some of the shots. Gross. It is gross. <laughs> I'm sorry. I get it where I can. I get pleasure where I can. Oh, we have to end this podcast. <laughs> through the glass floor, Mike. Yeah. Through the steps. 
that the restaurant everything with this fight is phenomenal but i just love the camera pans I, i'm a huge fan of the cinematography here i'm i'm shocked and appalled we're going to discuss the oscar lens throughout yeah I'm shocked and appalled it is not uh, one of the top five nominees here. It, it gave me a whole new appreciation too, reading about the backstory because they did film that part of it over in Japan. I actually went there. So you think about how hard it is to film any kind of movie anyway. First of all, to go scouting in Japan, find these things, and then you're on a limited time restraint anyway when you're over there to get the entire crew over there, to get all your actors in, in line and in set. You know you have a flight home to catch that you're probably not going to change. True. Well, one of the big things about this production that Tarantino was so proud of is that he used Beijing because this was mostly right. filmed in China. He used the Beijing yes. film crew. He's very, very particular about being authentic, as we'll find in Volume 2 as well. And he used a lot of their input, and he used a lot of their scouts, and he, and he did really just dive into Chinese filmmaking. I think that that really helps this production. But in terms of the best cinematography, Mike, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, won this year. <laughs> City of God, Cold Mountain, Girl with a Pearl Earring, and Sea Biscuit. Look, I remember them being all polished. Master and Commander was so boring. It was boring. I didn't care what the camera was doing. Right. <laughs> so if the movie's that bad, anyway, I just I, I can't imagine it being better than this. No. I can't imagine any of these movies, watching them 10 or 15 years later, just me just in ecstasy. <laughs> uh, can I describe this anymore for you? No, I mean, I can't imagine it being better than this. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. This, this did look stunning. And not only was it stunning from just a cinematography standpoint, but the presentation overall, like, I was actually trying to, having trouble de deciding what's most un-Tarantino-like. Right. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. The way he shoots this is just absurdly unlike any of his previous three movies and really unlike like I know it's a kung fu movie yeah. and I know that's not Tarantino and I know it's a heavy action movie and that's not typically Tarantino either I get that but you got the typical Tarantino shots and tricks in this you have quick cuts slow zoom and short tracking shots all that's there but you have also you go a siren indicating upcoming battles to layered visuals between what's going on in the present and the reflecting on the past to straight up going into black and white at one point as an homage to a manga cart anime cartoon taking place right in the middle of this freaking movie to talk about some exposition he does so many things so radically different and I, I was just thinking the whole time like a paul thomas anderson movie mm -hmm. you know you could see it's paul thomas anderson. guillermo del toro inurito you know it's one of these movies tarantino you know it is too but this was his chance to to show yeah he can do those things but he you can't pin this guy down he's capable of doing everything so he loves action movies throughout his childhood and this was a major point of pride for him to make and to try and make and aspire to make a right. great action movie him and rizza are yeah. basically because they become friends mike before this production just talking tell you about my best friend talking to them Fu skipping movies. yeah and of then course. later on like at first he wasn't even gonna ask rizza to do the soundtrack right. and eventually he's like you know what you got to do the soundtrack for this movie <laughs> but you know that's a little nugget too but the vfx mike he despised digital effects and he wanted all to use practical all practical here and he just refused to use anything digital like you mentioned before 450 gallons of blood fake blood used for this movie he filled chinese condoms up with that fake blood and that was like their major 
That that was like the major special effect throughout the film, just smashing these guys. And that's what I mean. All the, so those biggest scenes were on location in Japan. So you cannot have that many takes of these things going wrong, right? True. True. All that being said, I do think he builds these sets once again. Like the production design right. is phenomenal. I think that's yes, they're on looks they're on location, but at the same time, he's he, he's got all these little ticks, all these little details for these characters yeah. that I just love to relish in throughout the stunts, Mike. This fight scene in the middle, of the, towards the end of this movie, took eight weeks to film. Can you imagine? It's crazy. That's, that's absolutely insanity. I guess if one fight scene is going to take eight weeks, it's this it might fight as well scene. be the, the one that's done through a tracking <laughs> shot that lasts twenty minutes, twenty five minutes. As far as the stunt goes, I know we advocate that stunt needs to be its own category. This isn't directly related to Tarantino, but I did notice Brie Larson at the MTV Movie Awards recently, which just happened this past weekend. She brought her stunt doubles on to accept that the was award awesome. with her, Captain Marvel. Can we get the ball like? Can we sustain that kind of momentum to keep this going and to have recognition by the Academy? I, Uma Thurman talks about her stunt double too in certain so many interviews. That the, these people deserve recognition. Stunts weren't as big of a deal. Don't don't get on no, me yeah. for this. They weren't as big of a deal for Gone with the Wind and for all the old gangster movies. They were a big deal. Don't uh, right. At the same time, what we're doing now with all these tent poles, it's a huge part of the industry. Absolutely. And, and they're foolish not to recognize them on, on the industry's biggest night and something else that we get on the Academy. Mm-hmm. So Quentin hires RZA, RZA from the Wu Tang Clan, and eventually. He decides that RZA's got to, you know, pick this soundtrack out. RZA has a lot of fun stories. The one that I love most is he found the pan flute credits music while he is eating at a Thai restaurant and just has to, has to figure out who's singing this. Old Dirty Bastard will now be known as Old Dirty Chinese Restaurant. It's from the Dave Chappelle uh, racial draft skit. (laughs) And Quentin was out and about. He was at a clothing store in an airport. What a dick move this is. This is a dick move. And he (laughs) says in the making of this movie that it was a dick move. Uh, He hears the five, six, seven, eights. While he's at this closing global store, and he rudely asks the store to sell him the copy of the CD. I'm in a hurry. Can you sell me your copy of this CD? I can't possibly be bothered to go find it on my own. Tower Records. I can't. (laughs) trust myself to follow up on this i have to buy this right now talk about privilege i mean it's funny like i'm not i I, i'm taking the piss it's a hilarious story but it is a dick move he loves the music he goes to see them in concert then he knows he wants them to play live yeah in the movie yeah the band there in the the restaurant or whatever you want to call it at the end it's awesome as far as the score for this I would advocate this as being up for best original score if there was anything original about the score. <laughs> I mean, just, we have, like, the opening credits are to Bang Bang is Shot You Down by Nancy Sinatra. The sheriff drives up to the church. That Certain Female by Charlie Feathers plays. The Whistling. <laughs> Twisted Nerve by Bernard Herman. Green Hornet by Al Hint plays loudly as all parties race towards the club in Japan. Battle Without Honor or Humanity is that club. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. So Death Rides a Horse from Umo, Umo a Umo by Ennio Morricone, plays during a pivotal stare down. There's so many music, and, and Tarantino must go through life like Jim Carrey's cable guy character does, or like I do, <laughs> when you're just putting theme music to these things happening in the back of your head, no matter what you're doing. Almost each one of my Spotify playlists 
is just movie songs that I see right. movies. It just is. It's been that way for me for the last 20 years, whether it's an iPod playlist right. or this. I must have listened to this soundtrack. I'm sure. 150 times. It's great. I love it. I think it fits so well. Rizza is the man. Tarantino has great taste as well. And the places he puts in some songs. were One of the best moves during the biggest fight scene and he works in Nobody But Me by The Human Beings, which is like an old 60s song. Yeah. What are you doing? Who thinks this way? Amazing. I, I love it. And I love how each one of the fights, or at least the biggest fight, you have like 10 minutes of entrance music. Right. <laughs> right. That slow-mo walk down the hall with Lucy Liu when that's a... Da, da, that's like the greatest slow-mo walk scene. That is the pinnacle of slow-mo walks in movies. It's my favorite. We're going to have more on it. In terms of the performances, we're ready to go. Yeah, let's night. do it. Uh, how in the hell did Uma Thurman get snubbed this here? Is sad. We would have been irate. Yeah. We would have been irate if we had an Oscars pod back then. Now, listen, you got some worthy nominees. You got I'm good with Theron being there. Charlize Theron won for Monster yep. as Eileen Wernos. You have Kaisha Castle-Hughes, apologies if I mispronounced her name, for Whale Rider, kid actress, did, did a great job in that movie. Diane Keaton for Something's Gotta Give. Yeah. Really? Come on. Really? No way. That's not a legacy pick right yeah. there. Yeah. Look, Samantha Moon in America, she's awesome. Naomi Watts is awesome in 21 Grams. But the, the Diane Keaton it's, one... And you know what's sad is that... I love Diane Keaton. ...is how badly it sticks out already without even considering oh, Uma Thurman. Give me a you break. You know? Like, that doesn't... One of these things is not like the other here. It's absurd that Thurman didn't... And Tarantino was, was not happy about it. I like that Tarantino seems to be a guy that takes great pride. You could tell he cares about the Academy still, or at least he has every time we review these movies in the past because he really wanted Pam Greer to be nominated yeah. for Jackie Brown. He really cared that Uma didn't get nominated here for, for uh, Kill Bill. So I like that that matters to him, and he's trying to put his, his people, his actors and actresses, in the best position to merit Academy gold. And I love the rest of this ensemble as well. I think that they're putting on serious, dramatic performances, action movie performances where they're deadly serious. Yeah. Instead of doing the I'm going ham because I'm in a silly movie kind of performance that you get mad at some characters in the MCU for, even though I think most of the, the, those movie stars do a nice job. It struck me watching this. I couldn't remember, I and mean, you have more film experience than I do, but... Can you remember Lucy Liu screaming and being angry at the top of her lungs in I any just, other movie? I love that her face is not moving yeah. except for her mouth. I mean, each one of these characters, from Vivica A. Fox to, to Sonny Chiba, Daryl Hannah, they're playing ten different things yeah. in those scenes. Agreed. And they're making fascinating choices mm -hmm. with the performances. They're not going the cartoon movie no. route. And Bill, the same deal. You know, Bill's the, one of those characters in, the, in that second movie, but he's doing it here without being... Shown scene, yeah. that is an even keel voice. That is a voice that you can you can tell is traumatized by what he's doing and what he had to do and what he feels he had to do. Yeah. But it's also a voice that he knows what he has to do. And then of course he misses shooting her <laughs> in a way at the, in the very first shot of the movie in the head to to finish the job because he's rattled by what she said to him. Yeah. And I love the I love the bride's performance. To me, this is criminal that Uma Thurman got snubbed. I, uh, years later, that's going to be one that we we look back as one of the I, ultimate snubs. I would put Tarantino for director too. Yeah. I mean, he's the guy getting all these performances out of all these different characters. And and director that year, I, yeah, okay, Peter Jackson. It was the Return of the King year. That's fine. We get it. Yeah. Fernando Mariella, City of God. 
Again, I get it. Sophia Coppola lost in translation. I'm okay with that. Peter Weir from Master and Commander. No! Give me a... That movie... The Academy didn't become progressive, really, and totally understand what cinema could be and should be, I would argue, until 2009. Until The Dark Knight, maybe. Maybe. When they started realizing, oh shit, these big budget movies aren't just big budget movies. It, it, It is just something that sticks out like a sore thumb the fact that this movie gets snubbed everywhere even for best picture mike in 2003 i did not make a list because i'm a freshman in college i'm busy but at the (laughs) same time looking back to that year looking back at all these oscar films this would have been my favorite movie by a mile by a mile seabiscuit wasn't better than it (laughs) that was nominated for best picture Uh, look i didn't hate (laughs) seabiscuit i didn't i and i love some of the nominees that year freaking horse movies <laughs> <laughs> that would be a horse movie I, I would have thought should have pissed you off but i love lost in translation i love the barbarian invasions as a foreign film i, I love finding nemo i love mystic river at the time yeah, that mystic was a clint great, eastwood was the fifth director nominee also nominated mystery lord of the rings return of the king is my least favorite lord of the rings but i still love it that's also it was time they had to recognize that city of god is is a hell of a movie it's a hell of a feat I, it, talk about you know non-actors yeah. and everything they're doing he's doing there i mean he launched his career with that one great year for film this is still the best yeah freaking movie. it belongs in the conversation Give me a break. to be snubbed is just it's irresponsible quite frankly cold mountains up for thing no cold mountain sea biscuit no uh, master and commander hell no yeah i'm sorry terrible terrible decisions by the academy that year and it just i think it's snobbery because they looked at this it is as a genre that's exactly film. what it is Slightly, you know, disappointed after Jackie Brown for not delivering the same goods as his first two movies, perhaps. Aggravated with Tarantino. I don't know what it was. The fact that, you know, he pulls off a masterpiece that's also an homage to an entire genre of cinema that was looked down upon. And I think this is a great movie. I'm very upset. To me, it just goes back to, thank God, we're finally widening the Academy. Yes. And getting more of diverse voices, not even from a racial standpoint, but just getting younger voices but, but in you're there. you're right. I mean, The Dark Knight was that first right. everybody screaming that this is not nominated moment. How is it not? Yeah. How was this not? Yeah. And I'm sure if we go back, as we do, we're going to find even more of those examples. But let, let's get into some non-spoiler script thoughts here. And I got a lot of homages that you've already kind of touched at. The Shaw Scope logo like at the beginning of the film pays homage to the Shaw Brothers studio, known for martial arts films like Five Fingers of Death, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, etc., etc. Huh. They're known for the crash zoom and the fast zoom. Those are trademarks of theirs and their films. Uh, the flashing red screen is an homage to Death Rides a Horse and Ennio Mar- Marconi's theme music. For that movie, plays when the bride squares off with the villain at the end of the film, Michael. Mm-hmm. So again, Tarantino loves his favorite films, and he's not afraid to steal from slash pay homage to <laughs> them all. The anime sequence is an homage to violent anime films such as Gogo 13, The Professional, and The Wicked City. And the idea to have an animated sequence within movie, Tarantino cites uh, an Indian film, Ala Vandan. He also said it would have been the first thing he cut if this, if one, volumes one and two were one movie like they were originally intended yeah. to be. Yeah. He said that would have been one of, the, and I think that's one of what the most, shame. yeah, one of the most unique things in the Tarantino movie, period. 
Yeah, he's got another Brian De Palma sequence in this one with Ellie Driver <laughs> whistling uh, to visit the bride. Uh, in terms of the plot, the movie resembles most 1973's Lady Snowblood and 1968's The Bride Wears Black. Do you have experience with either of those? I do not. I I'm do not curious either. to watch. Yeah, I, I am now as well. I seen a new oh Lady Vengeance. I'm thinking of the wrong movie. Okay, uh, not close to this one. Uh, like you said, the music is all homages. Twisted Nerve theme song to the 1971 thriller of the same name. We have that. We have the bride's yellow suit being the same one used by Bruce Lee in his last film, Game of Death. Mike, we get just there's so many things. There's too many to mention, but those are the ones that stood out to me in terms of the script. I want to say that I think this one has the least unmentionable or, or the least amount of things that don't age as well. I mean, we, we're going to talk about the second one yeah. probably as having a lot of things that are going to hit us the wrong way. This movie, though, it's a pretty clean revenge film. It's a pretty clean martial arts movie. There's only 17 F-words used in this film after he was double, you know, triple digits the last yeah. few movies. Yeah, it's, it's his first one under 100, his first film under 100. But it also, he has some just downright gross dialogue and he doesn't use any words that make you cringe. True. And it's just so aggravating because it just proves you're a capable screenwriter. You can make people jump out of their skin without using these forbidden or taboo words. Leave the racial slurs yeah. to, to other movies of the past. Let's mm-hmm. get those words out of our vernacular. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So we can uh, jump into spoilers, Let's Mike. Let's go to the theater. And now for your spoiler warning pleasure, the Mike Mike and Oscar Theatre Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. <clears throat> Where's Bill? Where's Bill? Please stop hitting me. Then the bride looks down and sees two tattoos on the orderly's hand, one spelling B-U-C-K on each finger of his left hand and another spelling F-U-C-K on the fingers of his right. The bride seems to look inside her own mind, and whenever she does this, a special theme music will play. We'll call it her remembering theme. We do a quick Shaw Brothers zoom into her eyes where we see Buck enter her room that first night five years ago. He's holding in his hand one of those big flashlights you use in a tent when camping. It gives off a soft blue light. Buck examines the bride through the blue. I'm from Longview, Texas. My name's Buck, and I'm here to fuck. He starts to unbuckle his belt. She looks down at Buck in present and says, Your name's Buck, right? And you came to fuck, right? This is the spoiler section for Kill Bill Volume 1, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of our Tarantino rewatch series. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to pause this episode, go watch it. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back. If you've seen the movie already, if you're just curious to hear what happens, or if we've hyped up the spoiler section for you so much in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing our takes on it, this is where you want to be. It is all spoilers all the time from here on out for Kill Bill Volume 1, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the way we start the spoiler section is we're going to go through some trademark Tarantino stuff. 
So we, we break this down in kind of three sections of best scenes. This mm-hmm. is like our best section. We have classic, we have sneaky classic or underrated, and we have the un-Tarantino, which is new stuff, innovative stuff that he, he's doing for the first time in his film career. So I'm going to start with classic, and biggest thing for me, a wannabe screenwriter, is that this structure jumps around again, and of course it's a great decision because if you started with Vernita Green, of course you need to end with the bigger story right it's a hundred thousand times as big and i think it's fun that the vernita green scene happens uh as chapter two because you know the bride gets out of it and it makes the whole movie suspenseful which is something that we've gotten on tarantino for for not doing up till now Mm -hmm. we know what's going to happen we know the bride gets out of it which allows us to just sit back and have fun and not to freak out over the fact that she is at the edge of a knife literally throughout that entire movie. But this is a straight up one, two, three, four, five revenge story that he's doing over two movies. And of course he has to do two first and then one after that, right, Mike? Yeah, of course. That's the Tarantino way. There's more money to be made. Also, as far as, as his structure with it, there's a lot of explosive violence after segments of just calm talking and peaceful conversating. Right. There's like a knife fight that breaks out, and then we have to stop because the girl's getting off the school bus. Come home so hey you want coffee yeah we'll have coffee and talk and then i'm gonna fire a gun at you and we're back to knife fighting i love that sequence (laughs) so freaking much it was great it was it rivals anything in mission impossible fallout anything we've seen the last few years i love that the kid comes home that makes it kind of goofy and it also makes it kind of serious and adds to the stakes yeah there's enough there to have Kill Bill Volume 3 or Kill B yeah. Volume 3 right there, setting that up for a new character to go on a vengeance spree to get at the bride. Tarantino I, has, totally in. has commented on that. We're going to talk about that in Tarantino verse building. I agree. Uh, also, no director takes you like down the road of tangents as much as Tarantino does. We're in the back seat after the bride finally wakes up and takes out that disgusting orderly at the hospital, climbs into the pussy wagon, gets in the back seat, and she's trying to wiggle her big toe. And then we just go down this pathway of learning all about Oren Ishii's backstory in this manga comic book that we don't... I mean, that's very un-Tarantino. We'll talk about that, too, but... All the while, we're still in the back seat. We've never left that back seat yeah. where she's trying to regain her faculties and just wiggle her big toe. In terms of the story structure, I, I remember this happening. I was like, wait, how does he pull this off? How does this work for the bride's storyline? Like, the bride flashes back to all the people looking over her. So we're basically getting that list before we actually get the list of the one, two, three, four, five people she's got to kill. Mm-hmm. And we just go into the big one for this movie. It perfectly sets up the end of this movie, and it's necessary to make us like Oren Ishii. This is very smart. You build a rounded character with a traumatic backstory from the from the jump. And the cinematography and that animated sequence, if you're going to go animated, do things you couldn't actually do with a camera. And it blows my mind. It's some of the most gorgeous shots of this film. Yeah. Obviously, you got some of the grossest shots of this film in that un-Tarantino, I guess we hit it now, un-Tarantino sequence, but I, I just loved it. I was surprised that I loved it as much as I did. I thought it was beautiful. It's one of the most memorable. It's actually, it aggravates me. Like, why is that not one of the more memorable in the same way we talked about how things should be more recognizable in Pulp Fiction than the Ezekiel speech, why is that moment not more talked about and not more well-known in pop culture when we think about Kill Bill Volume 1? Yeah, well, I, I don't remember until I watched the movie, if years have passed, you know? When Oren's got the sniper gun, mm. and she's at the top of the, the rooftop there, and she shoots the guy with the cavalcade. Yeah. 
is there a, a more beautiful shot in this or any film? I, I thought it was phenomenal. And she's in the red leather. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Loved it so much. It's not classic Tarantino. But the fact that he pulls off a major expositional dump yeah, with this story structure, uh, I can't believe he got away with it, but he does because it's so magical. So sneaky classic. I am going to talk about the Hattori Hanzo scene. Okay. Uh, I think this is one of my favorite parts of the rewatch after coming away with it i i love the setup so much again i love the performances they got so much to play here there's a ruse going on for both of them yeah it's like uh, a mission impossible meeting of two spies yeah you're only getting hints at who's who double talking yeah yeah you don't know that he's necessarily a big piece of this story but then he flips the knives onto their magnets when he's getting into an argument with the you know again misdirection <laughs> he's getting into an argument with whoever's behind but i want to ask you how is that guy so rude to him as they work together it's got to be his nephew or something but then he's so he honors Hattori hanzo in the ceremonies <laughs> right. like he's his second in command well, that's maybe, i mean that's family isn't it you're like don't bother me i'm watching my soaps yeah he's the next Hattori hanzo <laughs> that dude or something i love that she pretends to be a dumb american but apparently she pronunciates the japanese words fairly well or at least that's what he says mm-hmm. we don't know the language so we can't tell you but she says she drops the bomb on him i'm here to see Hattori hanzo and of course, I guess that's magic words for way of entry. He takes her upstairs, shows her all the swords, but you're not getting any of those swords. And then she says, you have an obligation. <laughs> and I love that that's all he needs to hear. You know, a Padawan of yours is someone that deserves to die. And he writes the word on the window with, you know, the, the fogged window. And I love the way he writes it with the sideways slash mm-hmm. at the dot to dot the eye. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> And then you get the whole sequence with Hattori Hanzo, which I thought was one of the more boring scenes when I was younger. I love it so much now. It apparently is is a meta joke on top of a meta joke because Tarantino, I, I don't know if it's him quoted as saying or somebody else is quoted as saying that Okinawa is notorious for having the worst sushi in Japan. Really? So that's where the bride finds Satori Hanzo, and that's kind of a joke that he's operating a little sushi restaurant because he's trying to hide, and he figures nobody will bother him if he's the one making sushi in Okinawa because huh. it's notorious for bad sushi. <laughs> it's, it's a ghost town. <laughs> right. It's a restaurant so, that's not making any money. So it's a perfect place. If that's true, I know nothing about it, obviously, but it's that's true. It's a great place to hide, and it's kind of a nice little narrative about his character without really getting into it. That is funny. That's wild. Uh, you got any sneaky classic stuff? I here? do. I have a couple. The unexplained exposition. I don't think we talk about it enough, but so the the fight with Vernita Green happens. Mm-hmm. The bride kills her. Then we see her get in a, in a truck that's yellow. At least we see it's bright yellow. We see her pull out a kill list. A name's already crossed off. We know there's five names. We don't see how many are crossed off. We see her crossing off the second name. We don't know who Oren Ishii is at this point. And we see her drive away in a pussy wagon. None of this is explained. <laughs> and, and this is typical Tarantino. He gives you it. basically the whole story before he tells you how he got there. Yeah. And, and this is another example of that. So we know we just have faith in this guy to explain all of that is going to be figured out by the but time we're like, done with this movie. But then once you get the Oren Ishii backstory, like that's the ending. Right of this movie and <laughs> all right, I already know the ending. I could just have fun. Right. That, that's why I love yeah, it so much. Same here. It just relaxes me where I'm not worried that she's going to die horribly. <laughs> the whole thing. You don't like being on the edge of your seat. Yeah. Which is something I was worried about a little bit with Bruce Willis and Pulp Fiction or other movies. Eh, slight spoiler, I guess, but 
whatever. You you should have seen Pulp Fiction if you've seen Kill Bill. <laughs> so you got more stuff, though. I don't know if this is sneaky classic or if this is classic or if this is un-Tarantino at all. <laughs> but the 10-on-1 sword fight, that's almost like a dance. As we see their silhouettes dancing against that blue backdrop in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Man, it is beautiful. It is just beautiful to watch. It's like, I know he's over the top with gory violence, and this has that. Like, the whole lead-up to that scene is over-the-top gory violence mm-hmm. and gritty, just disgusting, even, even maybe even more so than usual. But then we get to the scene that's like, like so-you-think-you-can-dance number. It's just all these bodies moving around in unison and, like, Dance! I don't have another word. It's just a dance of There's these eleven people. Great dancing going on there. <laughs> uh, it's it's phenomenal. The stunt should have gotten awarded yeah. throughout award season. I don't remember if they did back then. I love the fight scenes. I'm going to talk about it in my own Tarantino. I think you're going to talk about it a lot mm-hmm. too because it's a lot to analyze. Yeah. I will say another sneaky classic thing for me from Reservoir Dogs. Obviously, got the slow mo to dance music. It was just the intro. But for my money, the best. Well, and you mentioned it earlier. The best, you know, entrance music slash entrance scene of a big fight ever. And it goes for like 10 or 15 minutes is the bride on the motorcycle, on the plane yeah. with the, the dead red sky, on you know, all of the crazy 88s going into the restaurant. That whole scene is just the, it's the best so thing I've cool watched. It's so cool and so badass. But can you imagine being on that plane and sitting next to this woman? And she's got two markers, and she's just casually writing down a kill list with, next to a sword. Her samurai sword was there, right? Yeah, it's probably illegal. Talk about a pre-9-11 world. Yeah, very true, very true. Oh, my God. can't even imagine that now. That'll be something that people look at later on. They're like, what? what? Right. <laughs> can't take a nail filer for good reason. But, yeah, I love that whole sequence so gosh darn much. I love how the second part of it kicks off after you get the killing Tanaka, the gangster Yakuza scene, where it's the so it's so it's a muscle flex scene for Oren Ishii. It's great. It, there's a great performance. It's disgusting. Oh God, it's <laughs> phenomenal. And then immediately after, cut to one ticket to Tokyo, please. <laughs> to me, that sneaky classic that is so brilliant. And then you get all the music, you get all the stuff on the plane. Like I said, I, I I love it so much. I have one more sneaky classic scene here. Go ahead. The only other sneaky classic thing I have is that he is. We talked about it in the not spoiler section at length. He is maybe the most underrated cinematographer or director when it comes to that his kind of visuals looking at the bay window between vernita and the bride fighting there's so many classic shots that are just amazing throughout this movie yeah and it just goes back to the, to the writing for me this last one i have is that i loved how he, he starts off with the bloody bride it was something he talked about on set with uma it's like she's like what if mm-hmm. we started off with the, a bride but she's oh my god she's beat what up happened to her yeah she's bloody and then he has the scene with vernita green where she's okay again he's just he wants us to have fun with this movie, so he's given us all the endings of all the stuff that we should be afraid of. So this is Tarantino saying, she's okay, don't worry, and here's how she she's okay. After the Vernita Green scene, we cut back to Michael Parks and the two sheriffs oh, spit in his face. This one's still kicking. <laughs> oh my God, I just love that so much. And it's again, it's Tarantino saying, 
just have fun. Yeah. Thank God for that. All right, so uh, the Un-Tarantino, yeah, we got a lot for Yeah. We got a lot for this, and we mentioned the anime backstory already. We kind of talked about that. So that's one thing that's just hugely, uh, obviously never done before or since. Everything, cl- you know, close-ups on the sword, the daughter under the bed, raining blood on her face. My God, the visuals of that sequence. Some of the best I- I've seen. I can't imagine them being able to do that. In re- and in manga, life. anime, and all that was not as widescreen, widespread in 2003 when this movie came out as it is today. When you have, you know, what's the Crunchyrolls available. It's all anime subscription service and all that stuff. This was a lot of people's first exposure to that type of it thing. It was mine. Yeah, I, I think it was I mean, mine as well. I watched some old school kung fu movies growing up. But I, I did not watch a lot of right. anime. I watched a little bit growing up. But this, yeah, as an adult, Tarantino's saying, hey, it's cool to love this stuff yeah. as much as I do. Here's a whole new world. Go explore Absolutely. it. How many new fans did he create? How many times did I click on an anime movie as an adult after watching Kill Bill that I wouldn't have otherwise done so right. if I didn't see this and I didn't think it was so cool? So the un-Tarantino for me, though, is all the fight scenes because he had not yeah, without question mastered this in any previous movie. In fact, he cuts away or he does something funky where he doesn't. It's almost like he's afraid to record the action in the first three other movies. Now this is master shot mastery, Mike, because I I am so happy. I'm literally screaming out every time he he goes back to the master shot. Sally Menken's editing job. I don't know if it's her idea She's or his. Phenomenal. But her editing job in this movie is wonderful. The, the go-go fight, for one, the, the master shot, and so different, many different master <laughs> shots. It's like he recorded this whole fight from multiple master yep. shot angles, and I, it blows my mind how he's going from one the one tilted master shot, the one head-on, the one overhead. Good God, I loved it so much. Because you, just like Marvel does, if you can live in that master shot, if you can every time you go, all right, maybe I'll go a couple close-ups here. Keep cutting back to it. Back to yep. the back to the beauty of the whole thing. Agree with you, yeah. He's a ma- and that's again, it goes more towards his cinematography. But you're right in that we don't see this kind of hand-to-hand close quarters combat from Tarantino ever. Yeah, I mean everything's very gun-driven and very <laughs> explosive and automatic-driven. So this is uh, this whole sequence. I don't know if he wrote it. You could tell why it took eight weeks to get down and coordinate. It's just stunning. And he knows what works, too, from, from all these kung fu movies. And he knows the scenes that he loves the most. And it's usually the characters reacting to the setting. The glass, it cu- the cuts, the scrapes, the the slams of uh, everything in Vernita's living room, right? Reacting to all the tables, which if you watch mistakes from the movie, were not there in previous shots. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> They're getting slammed on the tables. But reacting with the setting, every foot of that restaurant space is reacted with the walls the paper walls are cut through and Mm -hmm. broken through it's just something that you see in a great jj abrams movie it's something that you see spielberg do all the time when you get great action scenes they're reacting to everything around them we went back to lord of the rings fellowship of the ring when you have the cgi and the practical effects move working together yeah when you're throwing flower pots at (laughs) you know characters in mission impossible or whatever when the mcu when you have Tony Stark, you have this beautiful Captain Marvel scene. They're in the sky, but yet the debris is hitting them or hitting the other characters <laughs> yeah. on the ground in Avengers 1. All that stuff is essential, and Tarantino gets it immediately. It, it portrays the nastiness of, of it all, and he this is his first action movie. And the realness. And, he, and he's, yeah, it, it, it sucks you into yeah. reality. And then you see all the little scrapes. On these characters, right? You see all the you cuts. See actually, they actually get hurt. They're not just superheroes. You have the sound effects. 
The uh, sound effects are exquisite throughout this entire thing. It's an orchestra. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Uh, the the best for me, it's most on Tarantino, but it's it's the melding of these worlds. If he's going to be this kung fu director master, he sets up, it's the crazy 88s fight, obviously, but he Love. sets up the lines. Uh, he's saying, you didn't think it would be that easy, did you? And then Beatrix has her line, you know, for a second there, yeah, I did. That gives you goosebumps. And then we're, I could have done without the tricks of her kids line. Silly rabbit tricks of her kids. Yeah. I don't get yeah. that, but whatever. <laughs> uh, so the crazy... Crazy 88s enter, and we're, we're dealing with uh, Crane, White Lightning from the soundtrack by RZA and Charles Bernstein. It really oh, sets the mood well. Great. And he, just a couple one-by-one one shots of what we have. So we, the, we already have this big kung fu set, this big sword fight set where she's taken out maybe 10, 15 guys. Yeah. Then, then she, she's surrounded. She's got like 83 left <laughs> right. because there's five of the crazy right. 88s. There's Go-Go. There's a few more. Yeah. So then she's surrounded by the rest of them and we have her bending over backwards to slit the stomachs of three men. She grabs the eye out of another person and that's I when we loved, go into black and white. I love the bend over backwards that was so sweeping cool. yeah. sword. And they, she does it, of course, with the overhead Yeah. Shot. Yeah, show everything. It was so well done. She grabs the eye, like I said. That's when we cut the black and white. She cuts one man's head off, then she splits another man right down the middle, which was disgusting. <laughs> uh, she stands on the shoulders of one guy and fighting other people off. She propels herself up to that second level by jumping off the floor, yeah. then off an impaled sword, which is stuck into one of the beams, to get back up to the first floor. You get She'll... those crouching tiger, hidden dragon yeah. jumps that was in all the old kung fu movies, right. of course, which is, you know, both these movies are basing it on. And then she kind of pulls vaults back down to the first floor and releases that I don't know what it is, a beam, I guess, that you use the pole vault that smacks a guy right in the face on the second floor. She flips over one man to cut into two others. She runs and slices through eight men, which are staggered on either side of her. In close quarter combat, she avoids two wild swings from one guy to stab the dude in the stomach, then use that guy impaled on the end of her sword as a battering ram for other men near her. And then she does the break dance on the floor, which was just, that's when Nobody But Me by the Human Beings played, and I was Cutting practically orgasming. It was unbelievable. One limb after another. She's on her, she does that thing where like, it's like Neo doing the Matrix if he were to go all the way to the ground. So her legs are kind of folded and her she's on her back and she's just, I, she's just swinging in like this circular motion. She must have been stretching out for days yeah. doing this to get to that angle. She's a hell of an athlete. Yeah. Obviously her stunt double who will be in Death Proof, a, a great actress and an athlete as well. I, I thought they did a phenomenal job. I think the, the fact that she, before she leaves the room, Mike, she goes, leave the limbs you've lost. <laughs> they belong to me. That is the most fucking badass yeah. thing ever. And I just, I love that whole sequence, but it's also got multiple parts to it. Like you said, the black and white stuff, it goes to black and white because we're going to get gory, right? It's in color, then it's black and white, and then it's the silhouette fight. This is where I'm moaning with ecstasy. Yeah. The silhouette fight with the remaining 88, however many people are left, oh my good God. It's yeah. phenomenal. And then you got the through line of Johnny Moe, the general of yep. the 88, throughout, and you have to kill him, which is a crazy fight, and you got that crazy music. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, my God. The fact that he's able to do this, having never done a big action set piece before, it's it's just insulting, to so be honest. You think that's <laughs> as good as it can get, and then you have perhaps the most beautiful fight of Gorgeous. all time. I am, I am near tears. Yeah. I am loving this so much. <laughs> like, this movie is so phenomenally so gorgeous pretty, yeah. and he's right Tarantino when he's being interviewed about that final fight with Oren Ishii 
being the thing he's most proud of and being something that he would put up there. Again, you know, it's arrogant, but it's it's correct. Yeah. I think that's one of the best. And there's not even that much fighting in this scene. No, in, the, in the one-on-one battle, I mean. Oh, my God. The fact when, he, when he's got the music going and then the music abruptly stops, stops when she gets cut in the back. Like, oh, my God. Here we are. Suspense. It's not suspense. This is the part where we, well, I guess it is technically suspense because we know the ending. But <laughs> can the hero the, get up? Can yeah. the hero get up? Slashed on the back. And then, boom, she gets her on the leg. Now it's just dead silent. All you hear is the snow falling that and that water. Little, that water That's thing. That's so Tarantino, that too. Seesaw just water thing. Just the one thing keeping a tempo of the scene. Oh, my God. And then, of course, she's insulting her, talking shit. And then, she, she you know, the bride cuts her leg. I'm sorry for insulting mm-hmm. you earlier. Now it's on, and now and we we. And she ends up it. getting scalped. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. That this is this is like an art piece. It really is, and it's for anyone that wants to say that kung fu movies are relics and they can't be updated and can't be sold in the 21st century. Just look at this. My God, uh, this is the greatest kung fu movie I've ever seen. Now I'm not a. I don't have a lot of experience historian. with them, so I can't say anything like that. But it's certainly. I loved it. I loved this movie. I loved every second of it as well. So that is our best segment. We have a a worst segment that we want to get into before some screenwriting here, Mike. All right. We we, we did a scene before, maybe, perhaps. Don't know what you're talking about. Why would a guy named Buck with a tattoo of F-U-C-K on his knuckles, he he drives the pussy wagon, be allowed to work with comatose patients? He had to have gotten those tattoos and that truck after already being hired, right? You can't go into your job interview with those things all right, fine. on you. But who is his boss <laughs> allowing him to, to have all these things? Wouldn't that be a red flag? Maybe he should work with some other patients, like the live one, like the, the, right. the conscious ones. Right. Yeah, that's a bad hire. That's a bad hire. It's going to be a black stain on the resume. That's a nightmare. The, yeah. old, the old CV of that hospital. <laughs> that's fucked up. That's as fucked up as you get. Why does the bride, once she does is done dealing with Buck... There's the scene she looks down the hallway, but she, first she has to put on those glasses. Yeah. Why does she put on his sunglasses to look down the hallway? I don't know. Well, I've well, seen it's it's an homage to true romance, which, fine, but that doesn't answer my question. Why she's <laughs> screaming so much, everybody's <laughs> screaming so much in that sequence, and when Ellie Driver visits, she's screaming on the phone. The fact that everybody's nobody screaming reacts. in a hospital and nobody else reacts to it is absurd. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've all been to hospitals and yeah. we realize that if you scream at all... Everybody like, notices. Yes, absolutely. Because that's what a good hospital yeah. does. Oren Ishii was doomed from the start of that battle. Yeah. There's no way she could have concentrated because if you're fighting in the snow, why would you fight in socks? That's why do you make that choice? Of course your mind's going to be occupied with how cold and wet your feet are. The longer you go in the fight, the worse off you <laughs> right. are. That's a terrible decision. Terrible. That, that For an, a martial arts master, inexcusably now, poor. The minute I saw that, yeah. if I was still alive as a crazy 88, I'm quitting. Because I know this leadership is flawed. I'm holding a gun on <laughs> Beatrice. And I'm putting on my right. sneakers. Yeah. I'm putting on, on my boots. boots. Yeah, my boots that I had in the corner. Jeez. That one of my henchmen brought with me. I like, couldn't get over that. I don't care how one with the world you are. If you're over in Ishii, you have a fight to the death just in case bag, don't you? You have that with you. It's like a You have some bag. army boots there. Yeah. Or whatever you got to use in the snow. I, I love this movie. Maybe this is indicative of that, but that was the most offended I was watching yeah, this. And then the, yeah, the, the early thing I mentioned with the wiggle your big toe transition into a backstory exposition dump about somebody else. Yeah, I uh, like that. I can't that. believe he got it. I liked I ended up liking yeah. it, too. 
And it's crazy. And even the stuff about Buck and even the stuff about Oren, it's just overshadowed by so much sure. good stuff. Of course. And I'm in. And the fact that there's ten jokes in the Buck st- sequence that it's and we want him to die so bad. <laughs> Again, it works. It still works. So the, these are worse scenes. The trucker that talks to Buck at first, that guy's from Adam Sandler movies, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, that is that guy, right? He's the yeah. crazy li- linebacker. Right. All right, good. The water boy there. All right, so no more worse from, from us. This is pretty phenomenal. Is he the only person to have ever worked for Adam Sandler and Quentin Tarantino? Well, Quentin Tarantino sounds like he's buddies with that group. That's no, true, because... that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. Little Nicky. Yeah, yeah. Little Nicky. Yeah. So he's buddies with that group. I think more find their way into his movies down the line. Mike, screenwriting advice here yeah. quickly. In an interview with another person who shall not be named, asshole since then, mm. uh, Tarantino talks about how he tries to write his scripts at first like a novel. He wants to let his characters speak. Uh, when he's doing it right, he says that he's more like a court stenographer than somebody playing God. The characters start talking and taking this scenes this way and that, and, and they decide where things go. Tarantino knows ultimately where he wants things to end up, but discovering where his characters need to go along the way, that's the fun of it. And I, I love this so much. This is much easier said than done. I wish he would just lean into his egomaniacal vision. The I'm God yeah. of these characters. Don't talk. We know what you really think. Basically, what he's doing is he's playing with action figures <laughs> with these scenes. But right. I love that he's admitting that in a way. Right. I, I, you know, I mean, this is the right way to to mention how this happens. This is a process that takes months and sure. years. And I've, I've experienced few, I've experienced glimpses, brief moments of this when like the characters kind of, you know, you're writing through the characters where you're really invested in them. I, I've never experienced it to this level. That's why my writing sucks. I can't sell it. <laughs> but he's actually getting here to where he's totally immersed in what we called method writing from the last segment in the last episode right. of Jackie Brown. This is why he succeeds in it because he's able to put himself in the POV of all these characters characters throughout and then you rewrite these scenes and you write these scenes from that method writing perspective that's why it works right and i I don't disagree with any and this is a perfect example when the script is so obvious or when the structure is so obvious like it's one two three four five Mm -hmm. he knows what he wants to do in two movies he's got to get through five beats before the movies are done he knows where he wants to go, so let's just have fun with it. And that, that's what he tells your, the audience at the beginning of this movie, and that's what he does throughout. And it's, it's so perfect. Yeah, These characters are just having crazy things to do. But that's why, also why he writes like a novel backstory behind each character, because he needs to know them so well. He needs to know their goals so well. He needs to know their ticks, their, all their little details. But he also, he's, 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 he's not humble. <laughs> He says these things as if he he thinks that it's going to make him sound humble because they're what you should say, but this is the same guy that was going to cast himself as the big samurai master in the next movie. Yeah, that that was... (laughs) Can you imagine what a stupid decision that would have been? So... And that's fine. I, and it clearly works for him. I don't think there's a problem with it. If you you know, if you if you can do it, do it. Look, we're not trying to talk a lot of NBA here, but when we talk about our <laughs> NBA stars and the guys we want, they got to have a little ego, yeah, right? Of course. You know, these filmmakers, for them to be in charge of hundreds of people right. at one time, they got to have a little ego. It does 
cause him problems, though. We're going to talk about that no. in the next movie, in the next episode. Mike, you got Easter eggs and the Tarantino first. I kind of combined them into one because I'm going to do a big, uh, end this on a kind of a big dissertation about the Tarantino verses. But we're going to start with here. It's well known that the bride's real name is actually present a couple times in this movie. But for those who, who are just listening after rewatching the film yourself, it merits pointing out. Great care was taken to bleep out the bride's name, her real name, anytime someone said just it. Just because he could, right? right exactly. <laughs> and he, he doesn't, it's plain as day on the two plane tickets she purchases in this movie. It's an Easter egg that became famous at the time of this film's release. Everyone say hi to Beatrix Kiddo because that's Uma Thurman's bride's character's real name. And again, no efforts were taken to hide that on the ticket i wonder if that was intentional a mistake, or if it was a mistake there's i don't know a bunch know. of little mistakes yeah. especially with the blocking and whatnot in this movie there's a lot of great youtube videos on it i love that bill calls her kiddo yeah so much play on words there it's kind of weird <laughs> but it's also, it's also fun yeah i also wanted to inject my own easter egg the quote revenge is a di- dish best served cold is an old clean on proverb star trek anybody and he must know that because he's apparently a huge Star Trek fan. That's we, why he wants to do this script. We just talked about this at length in the last MMOW, yeah. Mike, Mike and Oscar Weekly. We've been following that story. Uh, and I, I hope, beyond hope, that he will <laughs> rewrite and direct that Star Trek movie. That would be so much fun. Seems Again, like just, it's more real than I originally thought it would be. Well, we're going to have a, at least a story by Quentin Tarantino credit for that movie when it does come out. Because everybody seems to be gaga over it. But this is, the, he typically, Fox Force 5 in Pulp Fiction, then he writes Kill mm-hmm. Bill. You know, the, the fact that he's alluding to things in, in earlier movies and then they actually happen. The fact that he's dealing with his guilt complex in other movies... The reason for the whole being of that movie, we're right. going to talk about that two weeks from now, Mike, with Death Proof. Good God, we're going to have a lot of things to say about that. Jackie Brown could be described about you know, in the same vein, you know, making a movie uh, about race relations after the fact that he's being criticized by all the... Sure people for the words that he's saying in his movies yeah there's a he certainly for as much as he kind of avoids real life or at least events of the world in his script writing he certainly injects himself into that which i think all great directors all great screenwriters do you he leans do. into it he embraces yeah. it and, and we're, i guess we're somewhat uh, happy about that this we is got more though this is something you hit on already but quentin tarantino was already thinking of volume three before volume two even hit theaters but ironically the version most often discussed for volume three has a direct tie-in with volume one here as he said in an interview with ign back in 2004 quote but i do have an idea that maybe 15 years from now doing the last chapter in the story but it wouldn't star the bride it would star nikki vernita's daughter and she would be the star of it and she would be 20 years old and i already know exactly what happens to her how she's raised and everything that happens the whole story i might even be shooting sometime in the next two years a couple of scenes while the actors that i'm working with are still young in this age and i can do a couple of scenes and stick them in a vault until i need them (laughs) it would be nikki going out to get revenge on the bride uma wouldn't be the star she'd be kind of the bad guy because the little girl kind of deserves her revenge so with it being a little over 15 years to the day that that quote was put on the record, I think I speak for everyone when I say with 100% accuracy that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is clearly a misdirection and will be the final chapter in the Kill Bill saga. <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine if he pulled that one off? I would love it. I know a lot of people would be upset that want to see Leo and Brad Pitt, <laughs> but I would appreciate that. So I wonder if he's going to do it pretty soon. I mean, it's, gonna, it's now or never, right? I haven't heard anything about it recently, and the most recent stuff has been Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Star Trek stuff you just talked about. 
But it also would be very Tarantino to be like, oh yeah, I've been working on this movie for the last 15 years. Here it is. Enjoy it. It's already ready. <laughs> right. It's already ready. Except we just got to film it now. The script is done. Right. That would be that would be a lot of fun. You got you got any more Mike Easter eggs? Yeah, Tarantino's in this movie apparently, which oh, I, didn't I didn't know. know I didn't know that. At yeah, all. Uh, it, I wasn't aware of until doing research for this section. But according to WhatCulture.com, Tarantino's actually playing one of the mangled corpses of the crazy 88s that splattered on the floor as the bride looks down and gives them warnings to leave behind their limbs. Why? <laughs> it's got to be in all his movies, man. I guess so. All right, here's the biggest one. Let's talk about the Tarantino verse at large, and this is where we'll end up with uh, for this episode. So let's talk about hard and fast Tarantino universes for a moment. We've touched on them in this section previously, but it warrants mentioning in detail here for reasons that will become apparent over time. So according to Tarantino Wiki, Reddit, YouTube, pretty much all those sites where fans gather, Tarantino has established two universes within his movies. There's the realer than real universe. So this is the universe that is basically an alternate version of our reality. Okay. It's where Tarantino characters can mix with historical figures, but it's the quote real life of these quote real people. And they are grounded by the same universal truths and rules that we are. So that's where let's say Inglorious Bastards comes into play. Once upon a time in Hollywood, perhaps. Exactly. Right. Uh, there's also the movie movie universe. This universe is basically movies that are actual movies within the realer than real universe. So in other in other words, when characters from Tarantino's Realer Than Real universe go to the movies to see a show, they'll go to watch something like Kill Bill. These are the films that don't necessarily adhere to, say, gravity, or are ultra and unrealistically violent. Now, the hard and fast rule is that characters from one universe cannot go into the other universe with one notable exception. The Realer Than Real universe movies are said to be Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, Django, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Basically everything except Kill Bill. Kill Bill and other non-canon Tarantino properties make up the movie movie universe. There's some debate as to which camp Death Proof falls into. It's not really important for the purposes of this conversation. So Jules, for example, from Pulp Fiction, could go to the movies in the Realer universe to watch Kill Bill. But he could never encounter the wife in real life because in his universe, the wife is still just a movie character. Got it? So Making who, sense? Wait, who's the wife? Uh, uh, Beatrix Kiddo. Okay. The bride. The bride. Not the bride. I'm sorry. Yes, the bride. So this also explains why Mia Wallace was describing having worked on Fox Force 5 in Pulp Fiction. And a movie in that universe is basically the same plot in Kill Bill. Because someone who makes movies in the realer than real universe had that idea and sold it for a film once TV was done with it. And there's actually a theory online I saw that Marcellus Wallace was the director of Kill Bill in the realer than real universe. Oh my god. Yada yada yada. It gets pretty intense. But... This is much, pretty much treated as gospel once Tarantino got the ball rolling on the idea during an interview on Australian television in 2016 brought stateside by Esquire. But the main reason I bring it up is that those who swear by this theory basically contradict themselves multiple times to prove its undoing, and it all has to do with Volume 2 of this franchise. So in this part in Volume 2, I'm going to try and poke holes in this realer than real versus movie movie universe. All right, I don't buy it. Let me just say. Go ahead. I don't, I don't either. I, I think that uh, it's hard enough to write a great movie, and it's hard enough to you know pay homage to all of you if you want to pay mm -hmm. homage to. That's what he's doing. I, it, there's no way. It's, what, it's his words. He said this. He said yeah, specifically he that Kill Bill things. is a movie within the realer than real universe. 
So he basically, well, that's the perspective that he looks at it from. But it's not like some overarching principle that he's working in, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's basically like, what if I was going to set a movie within my crazy universe? I agree with you. I don't buy it either. And I think there's enough evidence in Kill Bill Volume 2 that's going to really poke a lot of holes in it. But a lot of people swear by it. And the only, the, I guess it's fun. I apparently mean, I'm a skeptic. Only, the only character that can go between two universes we've already encountered. Do you have any guesses as to who that might be? Is it Buscemi? No, it's not Buscemi. It's not Buscemi. Well, who is in... It's a character in one of his movies. I don't know. It's the wolf. What the wolf is in more than one movie? I don't know, but apparently that's that's just what I read. The wolf is able to go between both universes. He's the only person. Why? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> You're stretching, folks. You're stretching. I'm the skeptic here. Set me straight on Twitter, on social media. I don't believe this. I love these movies all the same, and it's kind of fun to think about. To me, the interview behind it and the the POV or the perspective behind it. It opens up a lot of fun possibilities. Sure. So it doesn't have to be something that he's worked out. Stop being so close-minded, Mike. Let these people live. uh, What I'm saying is actually rather (laughs) open-minded. The fact that it is not this this allegory for him, that it's all a closed system, that does not make this bad. It it could be just a fun little premise for for all this world-building. Man, whatever gets you more involved into watching these and being fans of them, I'm for it. Go for it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's all I'm saying, though. It doesn't have to be. All right, guys, we want to know your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns on this and any other Tarantino rewatch movies that we have done, as as well as the Pixar movies. We just finished wrapping that up because this episode should be coming out after Toy Story 4, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's our plan. We'll see if that actually happens. Uh, Recording we, it. We did just finish our last review on the Pixar rewatch series. Toy Story 4 is in the can now. We're going to have probably one more thing to say about Pixar next next week. We have a lot more Tarantino coming. Again, this is all in leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's debut at the end of July. My God, I can't believe we're almost done with June already. Uh, we want to hear from you, your comments, questions, concerns, anything else about anything we do in the MMO empire. You can reach us, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit we're available everywhere you hear podcasts TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify Google Play, etc. If you appreciate what we do here, if you enjoy our inane ramblings, if you could leave us a 5 star review on iTunes, those truly go a long way. We really really do appreciate each and every one of those that we read every comment we get Michael, that's a mouthful. Let's get some words of wisdoms and some what's coming next from MMO so you mentioned most of it. We're also going to do a lot of Oscar Sprint profiles, movie events that are going to we're going to add to our seven part playlist right now yeah. on the best films of the year so far. We also did an episode on the best films of the year so far. But we're going to get back to you know 2019 films for the 2019 20 horse race action in a big way because a lot of those movies really start to come out. Yeah, uh, we knew we were going to have a, a, a lapse between those movies from like the MCU stuff and us. Uh, uh, leading into Toy Story 4, so we planned the Pixar series right. rewatch. We knew there was going to be another bit of a lull in June, so we planned to fit in the Tarantino series rewatch. After this, I don't think we're going to have a lot of time for rewatches because there's just so many current movies that are going to have something to say in award season that we have to cover, and there's also the movie events that we want to cover, so we're going to be all about that. So we won't be doing a Fast and Furious rewatch series. Not this leading year. Up to Hobbs but for Hobbs and Shaw, I thought we were going to. 
<laughs> no, maybe next year. Fast We've 10? talked about maybe next year yeah, actually fast, doing that. Yeah, Fast 10 is going to come out, but we got to do a canon. We can't do a spin-off, a rewatch before the spin-off. I'll thank you not to insult The Rock like that in my You've presence again. You've never even seen all these movies. <laughs> you just want to. How dare you? Uh, but we want to. <laughs> yes. We do want to. And then we'll have fun like that in the off-season. Like, we've had so much fun yeah. this off-season, even though it's tired us out, uh, kept us on our game. It's been a huge, it's been a huge ordeal, but it really... It really helps you appreciate new movies, too. I mean, you're learning all this stuff along the way. Hopefully, we're enlightening you just as much as we're enlightening ourselves. We're learning a ton. These have been deep dives. These have been studies. So, uh, And my words of wisdom kind of, you know, go against everything I just said. Because this is Tarantino just having fun. I mean, this is Tarantino at his least masochistic because he's just having fun. I see what you did there. And I, I think he's telling the audience at the beginning of this movie, hey... Just have fun. Here's the ending. Here's just have fun. You know what's gonna happen. I don't think he's saying that fun. in the next movie, though. Is he? You think he is? Just get gun to your head. I don't the know if you've watched it. Title is a director. <laughs> Maybe it's not Bill Killed. Yeah, if it was Bill Killed, I, mean, I guess you're right. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, guys. When reality sucks, you can come watch movies with us. We are trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We appreciate you listening. We will be back with you very, very soon. See you.